Uh, just by way of reminder, or maybe for announcement, for those of you who are new, we do have a kids' class that's available at this time that just meets in the back of this larger room. Kids, you're more than welcome to make your way there at this time. We also have a nursery that we offer every week, uh, and that takes place in the room right over here. Uh, that's fully staffed, and you are more than welcome to use that uh, for your kids if you would like. Join me, if you would, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark 1. Uh, There are many wonderful things about the world in which you live. And uh, I would imagine there are probably a lot of things about your life that you just love. And yet, simultaneously in your world, you face the presence of some very unpleasant realities. For example, uh, the presence of sickness. Your world is full of sick and suffering people. And sickness takes on all different forms, some of which is temporary, uh, some of which is chronic. uh, At other times, it may even be life-threatening. Just all different degrees of severity and intensity, but it's something every single one of us faces. And in fact, you may be uh, one who is quite sick even now or have someone that you love who is. And when you're sick, uh, it can be hard, I think, not to be so clouded just even in your, your viewpoint related to everything surrounding that and not have a certain just kind of negative outlook on life. I recently took our youngest son uh, to the Grey Nuns ER. Um, we were starting to get worried that he might be sicker than uh, what might be just worth waiting out at home. And so I took him there. And when we arrived at the Grey Nuns ER, the line was literally out the door. I hadn't seen anything like it. And so we stood and we waited. It didn't even really seem like they were triaging anyone. And we waited in line for a couple hours. And after a couple hours of waiting, we were to the point where we could visually see the, the whole ER. And the place was just packed. Uh, people, the, the wait was something like seven or eight hours. And people are just, they're kind of miserable, uh, moaning and groaning and suffering. And that's just one place at one point on one night with a particular type of sickness where people are hoping to be seen right then and there. So there's the presence of sickness. We could also think about the presence of sin. Uh, Your world is full of that, sin and wrongdoing. Uh, People sin against you. People sin against others. People hurt you. They wrong you. And the fact of the matter is you do the same thing. We could talk about the presence of evil and note that our world is full of that. You see it in very small, subtle ways, often in business and that sort of thing. And you may see it in these massive, colossal ways, even on the world scale. Satan and his demons are hard at work all over the place. All is not well. But to simply say that you live in a world where you face the presence of sin and the presence of Satan and the presence of sickness is to state it too mildly. That language does not accurately convey the severity of the issue. Sin, or sickness doesn't just kind of come up, tap you on the shoulder and say, hello. No, it, it's like it assaults you. It grabs you. It seizes you. Sin does the same thing. It doesn't, oh, here I am. No, I mean, the temptation is strong and and what we feel in our own hearts, those things are real. And in our battles with sin, it often feels like slavery where sin comes and there's the the chains and the shackles and the ball and it feels like we can't escape. It's the same with Satan. He grabs, holds, enslaves people. People do not face the realities of these, the presence of the reality of these things. Rather, they live in their bondage. 
People live in a world, or better yet, I might even, even say a kingdom, where people are held in bondage under the power of sin, under the power of Satan, and under the power of sickness. And the fact of the matter is, is that bondage is not God's plan for anybody. And our text today, what it's going to do, it's going to offer us a glimpse into a single day in the life of Jesus Christ. It's a Saturday And on this particular day, we're going to see Jesus interacting with sickness, the forces of Satan, and the problem of sin in the human heart. And what we are going to see is absolutely astonishing. Jesus Christ is the astonishing answer to your greatest needs. And we're going to see this in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. I'd invite you to follow along as I read all the way through this text, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at a few observations about Jesus. And the first thing that we observe is that Jesus, (coughs) Jesus Christ is an astonishingly powerful person. Verses 21 to 28 record for us two events that take place in the synagogue and both point to the astonishing authority and power of Jesus Christ. First, we see Jesus authoritatively instructs and commands men. Look at verse 21 again. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and it's noted that he was teaching there. Jesus and the four fishermen that he called in the previous paragraph uh, have left the Sea of Galilee together, and now they've made their their way to Capernaum, which is actually where Simon and Andrew lived. And on the Sabbath day, which would have been a Saturday, they entered the Jewish synagogue together, and Jesus is granted the opportunity to teach. And the people are stunned. Look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Who are the scribes? They were experts in, the, in Jewish law and tradition. They often expounded upon and taught upon those traditions and put even great weight on the teachings of other scribes. 
The manner and content of Jesus' teaching was different, though. Jesus spoke with stunning authority. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught that day. We have no idea. He's probably uh, drawing everyone's attention to some Old Testament text, perhaps from Isaiah or something like that. But verse 15 of Mark chapter 1 does summarize for us Jesus' teaching and preaching throughout uh, the Galilean region. What was Jesus teaching and preaching? Well, look back at verse 15. Jesus was saying things like this. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is authoritatively speaking about uh, time and, and the movement of history and events and their culmination. Jesus is saying that the time is now. It's an authoritative statement. Next, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, with authority, Jesus declares that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is here. And then notice what he says at the end of verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus authoritatively tells people who they are. In a bit of an uncomfortable way. He authoritatively uh, tells people what they are. He's saying, you're all sinners. And he's telling them what their hearts are like and he's telling them what they must do. He's commanding repentance and faith. His teaching and preaching ring with authority and people are asking, who is this guy? What is this? And I don't know, all these people gathered in the synagogue that day, whether they affirmed his authority that he spoke with and that sort of thing or not, they were at least shocked and stunned by it. Does Jesus truly possess the authority with which he speaks? Who is this guy? Does he possess this authority or not? That is the question. And what happens next clues us in on if he does or if he doesn't have that authority. Notice what happens next. Jesus authoritatively instructs and commands demons. A demon-possessed man starts talking to Jesus in the synagogue. I mean, just think about what life must have been like for this man. This poor man is the host of a demon who is controlling him and speaking through his voice. He's a slave to the forces and work of the devil. Look, now look at verse 23 and 24 as this scene unfolds. It says, immediately there was, there, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. It's almost like just boom, here it is. This guy is here and he's talking. And he cried out in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's interesting. This demon is speaking on behalf not just of himself, He talks about, have you come to destroy us? He's speaking on behalf of himself and all the other demonic forces of the devil. And the demon says three things directed at Jesus through the voice of this man. First, he says, what have you to do with us? It's a statement of uh, complete opposition and incompatibility. Two opposing forces that are nothing alike. Or maybe rather than saying two opposing forces, maybe again I should use the word kingdom. Two opposing kingdoms stand face to face. You have an unclean, filthy, defiled, wicked spirit and the Holy One of God. And then he says, have you come to destroy us? It's asked as a question. Uh, That punctuation may just as as well uh, be a period and a statement. 
You have come to destroy us. The demon knows why Jesus is there. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The demon knows that Jesus is the ultimate threat to his and all the other demons' power and authority. It's war. And further, this demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is, apparently having insight that everybody else there in the synagogue doesn't appear to have. Well, what happens next? Look at verses 25 and 26. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of the man. There are, I think this is just an interesting observation. There are no rituals. There are no incantations. There are no props. There are no formulas. All Jesus does is speak. Be quiet and get out. And it's as if, uh, to maybe uh, think about what might happen in the animal kingdom for a moment, it's as if a lion has stood up and roared. And the enemy, rather than engaging, (laughs) scurries off and runs away. Jesus said, come out, and the demon came out. In seeming anger, the demon let out a loud cry, convulsed the man, and he disappears. And you can imagine, I mean, imagine if that took place right here in this setting. Everyone in the synagogue is stunned. I would imagine it is quiet as can be. Not a peep is being made. Everyone is shocked and stunned, and people are probably uh, eventually starting to look around at each other. And then the chatter begins. Look at verse 27. It says, and they were all amazed. Again, they're just so stunned and shocked. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What on earth just happened? Who is this guy? We have never heard or seen anything quite like what unfolded today in our synagogue. We've never seen anyone cast out a demon like that, if at all. And word begins to spread like wildfire. Look at verse 28. It says, And at once his fame spread everywhere. Throughout all the region of Galilee, the whole region, the news just starts to spread. In a Galilean sort of way, we might say that Jesus just went viral. Word has spread like crazy. And what happened in that synagogue that day in Capernaum sends shockwaves all throughout that community and the surrounding regions. Jesus was disturbing and disrupting normal life in the kingdom of this world. He's walking around in the kingdom and it's disruptive. An international sporting event that only happens every four four years, is currently in full swing, as I'm sure many of you know. Uh, The FIFA World Cup is a soccer, or many would say football, tournament consisting of 32 international teams and involves 64 individual games. It's a big deal. Winning is a big deal. It only happens every four years, and there's there's several different countries and teams represented. Well, a few days ago, Lionel Messi and his teammates from Argentina stepped out onto the field against Saudi Arabia. 
Argentina uh, is a powerhouse. Saudi Arabia, let's just say, is not. And Argentina has actually been on a 36-game winning streak, not having lost a game in over three years. And to everyone's surprise that day, Saudi Arabia won. It was shocking. Jesus Christ is facing off here against a powerhouse kind of kingdom, the type of kingdom that nobody has ever seen lose. And from human appearances, what the eye can see that day in Capernaum, Jesus is winning. Who is this man? And is this some kind of one-off fluke where the big-time underdog just happened to pull off the win against the reigning champion? No. That's not what's going on. Jesus Christ is an astonishingly powerful person. And he is the answer to your greatest needs. Your greatest needs. He has the power and authority to liberate you from your sin. He's telling these people, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus can help you live in victory over your sin. If Let's say you are part of God's kingdom. He can help you live in victory over your sin if you'll recognize his power and authority and you'll submit to it. Do you ever feel stuck and enslaved in your sin? Powerless against it, wondering if it will always plague you. Uh, we talk about uh, sins sometimes um, like we'll have a besetting sin. And it's just a sort of sin that well, it besets you, right? It's always there. You're always fighting it. It seems like you never kind of get any better at it. It's just you always stink in that space and you always lose against that sin and that temptation. You ever feel that way? I do. We probably each have sins like that and other sins that we're fighting every single day. Jesus stands up and he has the authority over all of that. His power is greater. Jesus is the answer. And as you wrestle and you face your own sin, uh, what, what God wants you to do is look at Jesus. Jesus, will you help me? You are the power and authority over sin. And if you will help me, I too can have victory over it. He also has the power and authority to liberate you from Satan and his forces and his oppression. He can help you live in victory and win over all the attacks of the evil one. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12? where we're told specifically to put on uh, the whole armor of God, where we're supposed to array ourselves for battle, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan and his hosts want to attack you, Christian or non-Christian. All of his firing darts come, fiery darts coming at you. And verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers. Okay, notice on these next few words, it's all the language of power and authority. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in, heaven, in the heavenly places. Hear all the language of power and authority that Satan seems to have? And yet in this text, what do we read? We read about the power and authority of Jesus and there is no comparison. Jesus is greater than all of those forces, powers, and authorities. He is your answer. 
You know that Satan is at work to wreck your life and he's at work to wreck your relationships. He's at work to wreck your walk with God and so much more. And actually, I, I think as you read scripture carefully and note when Satan is mentioned and kind of the sins involved at, in those places of scripture where Satan comes up. The Bible mentions at least two things that Satan absolutely loves and that Jesus wants to free you from. And by the way, you don't have to be possessed by a demon to be a slave to these type of things. I want to mention two things specifically. The first one's kind of a category of sins. Um, Grudges, unforgiveness, and bitterness. Satan loves that space. And in that space, Satan and his demons love to chew people up and spit them out. And I'm going to show you this again and again in Scripture and just show you Satan loves this space. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. This is probably the most well-known text in this regard. It says, Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Lest, basically, verse 27, you give opportunity to who? Satan. The devil. And the idea is this, that something has happened (laughs) that has stirred up anger. Something has happened. Some wrong has occurred between people. And God warns, listen, something has happened and wrong has been done and hurts have been (laughs) dealt. And you're going to make a choice to go to bed that night having those things dealt with and choosing to be right with another person or you're going to pillow your head at night and if you pillow your head at night, do you know what you just did? You just opened, you just cracked open the door for Satan to slide right in there and wreak all kinds of havoc in your life and in your relationships. 2 Corinthians 2, 11 to 12, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 speaks specifically of the matter of forgiveness. And the context is actually church discipline and a man who has greatly sinned, but he has repented. And 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says this. Notice the repeated use of the word forgive and forgiveness. Anyone whom you forgive, Paul says, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then in verse 11 he says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his design. And Paul's concern here is this, if, and this, involved, this is two believers involved here, uh, sin, real, terrible sin has occurred and so has real, authentic repentance and yet there is no forgiveness. And Paul says if that happens, <laughs> we will be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. You, you throw open the door for Satan to powerfully work. James three fourteen to 15 says this, But if you have bitter jealousy, that's one sin, and selfish ambition, another in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Bitter jealousy, rotten, sour, fermenting jealousy, bitterness, and selfish ambition. If you have these things in your heart, James is going to say, let me just explain what that is. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This this is not like heavenly coming from God. But as earthly, unspiritual, and note this final word, it is demonic. Satan loves the space of grudges, unforgiveness, and bitterness. And let's be honest, which of us has not been there? 
And the nature of these sorts of, of things is that they are overpowering because often the, the hurts and the wrongs have been so great. And Satan just loves this space and it's like his power and authority and reign in that realm is so great. What does this text say? Who's standing there in the synagogue greater than all of these things? It's a person with great power and authority, the power and authority to liberate people from that kind of oppression, from that kind of temptation, from that kind of bondage. Grudges, unforgiveness, and bitterness, but something else I think that may be worth bringing up at this time is also the space of self-harm and and self-destruction. Mark chapter 5, you can turn over there if you want and look at verse 5. We'll get to this passage in a few weeks, but there's a demon-possessed man. Same type of scenario. And what do you see him in Mark chapter 5, verse 5? What is this man doing? It says that he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Wow. This is like the habitual pattern of his life. He's always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is suffering. And he's in the space of self-harm. This man was so tormented and troubled by evil that he was cutting himself. Somehow, he is at the point now where pain feels good. And maybe that's you. Maybe nobody knows. Maybe that's a private reality of your life. And I just want to point you to the fact that these are the things, these are the spaces that Satan loves and he works That's his realm. And Jesus is the answer. And I think this entire text is drawing your attention. Why don't you look at him for a moment? Who is this man standing in the synagogue there in Capernaum? Who is he with this kind of authority and power commanding people to repent and believe? That's exactly what Jesus wants you to do. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news. There's a different kingdom where you don't have to live in bondage and slavery. And you can be a part of that kingdom. Repent and believe. Jesus Christ does more, though, than astonish in his power. There's something else in him that complements the astonishing nature of his power and authority. In the next few verses, we're going to continue to to see that power and authority. It's not like that theme's going to move off to the side and a different one's going to come. No, that theme's going to remain, but we're going to see the power and authority of Jesus coupled with something else. His goodness. His goodness. The second observation about Jesus, Jesus Christ is an astonishingly good person. In verse 29, Jesus and his four disciples walk out of the synagogue to the house of Peter, which likely was a short distance. Archaeologists are fairly confident they know the exact location of the synagogue that Jesus stood in that day in Capernaum. In the 4th or 5th century, a new synagogue was built on top of it, and through archaeological discovery, they found that one, and then underneath it, the floor of the one from the 1st century. Apparently, we know exactly where Jesus stood that day. And archaeologists also believe uh, that there's another location that may represent, it may have actually been Peter's house. Uh, obviously, there can always be a little bit of speculation about this, but uh, it seems like it's a real possibility. It was just maybe a, a hundred feet away or so. 
less than a minute walk. And so they walk out of the synagogue and off to Peter's house they go. And there in Peter's house we learn that Jesus cares for individual people. Jesus Christ is an astonishingly good person who cares for individual people. Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Verse 30, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Okay, the scene in the synagogue was like public, for all to see. Um, It's out there, front and center. But this next scene is literally the, the opposite of that. It's totally different. Verses 29 to 31 take us through the door of Peter's home and behind his walls. Uh, the scene is private. It's personal. It may even take place in a back room somewhere. And Jesus, as he walks through the door of Peter's home, maybe he sits down and he's starting to get comfortable. And then he tells him that Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Well, maybe a a few observations we might make. Given that she lives with her kids, it may be that she's a widow. That's a real possibility. Um, Her actions, her subsequent actions in verse 31 could indicate that she is really not the type of person to do nothing. She's probably an active person. And Jesus, after hearing about her sickness, approaches her and he powerfully heals her but not with impersonal power and authority. Think with me for a moment about the five senses. Touch, hearing, sight, smell, and taste. Which ones of those five senses seem most prominent in this private, out-of-the-way scene where Jesus ministers to this woman? Which of the five senses do you see? Which ones stand out? Look at verse 31. And he came... And he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. Which of the five senses do you see there? What do you think? Mark does not record for us a single word that was spoken or heard. No, actually what he records is that Jesus walks up to where this woman is laying and suffering. He's standing right over her bed. He's standing right over her. It's not her finest, best day. And Jesus walks and he's standing right over her. And I would imagine that as he stands over her, he looks her in the eyes. He sees her. He sees this individual woman. And the text records for us that he reaches out his hand and he takes her hand. He has her hand and his We have sight and now touch. And with his hand, he simply raises her to her feet. He instantaneously and completely heals her. Jesus cares for individual people. And the text goes on to say, and she began to serve them. She serves everybody in the house. That detail functions to emphasize at least two realities, one of which is that she's uh, completely healed. She doesn't like need a little bit of time to recover, regain her strength. No, she's completely healed right then and there instantaneously. And number two, it highlights that serving Jesus should be the response of every person who has been blessed by him. And perhaps I could make a third observation just about this whole scene. Whose house is this happening in? 
This is happening in Peter's house. In previous verses, just a a few verses back, Peter and his brother walked away from their nets. They walked away from their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Well, Peter has an entire family. An entire household to take care of. And it's not just his wife and kids, apparently. His mother-in-law lives with him, too. Peter has several people depending on him. He has several mouths to feed. He has weights. He has burdens. He has pressures. He's a man who lives in the real world. Just like you and I. Why am I bringing this up? I'd imagine that that day probably struck Peter a certain way. When you decide to follow Jesus with your life, maybe we should just all remind ourselves that Jesus will take care of your needs. He's going to look after you. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You just follow him. Jesus cares for individual people. He cares for you personally. He sees you personally and he cares. And there is a flip side to that incredible, awesome coin. And that is that Jesus cares for all people. Jesus has already had a a full day, right? He's had a full day of public teaching in the synagogue, spiritual war in the synagogue, and now healing in Peter's home. He healed his mother-in-law. And the text is going to record that the sun is starting to set. And if you're Jesus, full day, tired, I mean, it's intense. He could probably just use a little bit of me time right now. Maybe sit down at the table, have a cup of tea, some enjoyable conversation with friends, a few laughs, and off to bed. And yet what we're about to see is that his compassion has no limit. Yes, his authoritative power has no limit, but neither does his compassion. Look at verses 32 to 34. That evening... At sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus has started to go viral in Capernaum and all the surrounding region. But from the people's perspective, there's like kind of only one problem here. Until the sun sets... It's still the Jewish Sabbath. And all the Sabbath restrictions are still in place. You might kind of say these people are still kind of locked down. It reminds me a little bit of like what Black Friday might be like at a place like Walmart, particularly in the States, of course, where hundreds of people have gathered outside the doors waiting to get that big screen TV for 50% off. It is a screaming deal worth getting up at 3 a.m. to wait outside in the snow for. And as soon as the doors open, people are going to stampede through those doors, trample each other, flatten each other to death because they want one of those big screen TVs 50% off for themselves. These people... In this text, aren't lining up outside Walmart hoping to get a screaming deal on a TV. These people are lining up outside the doctor's office. They are sick. And they are oppressed. And they are demon-possessed. And people are lining up for themselves or for their family member who they love, who suffered with this forever. And they are looking for healing 
from their pain, suffering, and torture. They're looking for some great and awesome, incredible benefit for themselves or the person they love. It makes sense. You would have been there too. But as soon as the Sabbath ends, they're there. Bang, 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 bang. Knocking on Peter's door. And we might think, come on, guys. Like, for crying out loud, it's dark outside. You came with your lamps because you couldn't see anything. The day has come to an end. Just let it rest. Be human. But what we're about to see is though the day has come to an end, Jesus' compassion hasn't. It's only just begun. And in hyperbolic language, Mark records that the whole city of Capernaum is waiting outside Peter's door to see the doctor. They're probably all, you imagine like a big courtyard area, maybe where all these houses are facing each other. They're all there. They're all down the road. They're all down the other side road. They're all in the alley. And one by one, Jesus heals those who are sick. He liberates those who are demon-possessed. He heals every single one of them. And surely, given the volume of people that the text describes here, this probably stretched into the wee hours of the morning. His compassion has no limit. Jesus Christ is an astonishingly good person. He cares for individual people. He cares for all people. And he is the answer to your greatest needs. Whatever kingdom Jesus spoke of as of being near in Mark chapter 1, it must be a great kingdom with a great king because as soon as that kingdom is near, as soon as that kingdom is there, it's a realm where people are suddenly seen and noticed and known and cared for and set free and liberated and it's just a taste of that kingdom. Many of you have great needs and burdens and pains. Jesus speaks of a a kingdom and a king. And in that kingdom, Jesus sees you. He sees you individually and he cares. And also, I think a text like this reminds us that Jesus Christ is Lord over sickness. And I want to ask you this question, knowing that so many of you are struggling with various ailments. This is common. Jesus is Lord over sickness, and I want to ask you this. Is he Lord over yours? And I didn't ask you if he took it away. Is your sickness Lord of your life, or is Jesus Lord of your sickness? Does your sickness determine whether you have joy and peace, or is Jesus greater than that? Jesus can set you free, not just from the physical side of your sickness, but from all of its Slavery, so to speak, where even in the midst of that sickness, you could have joy. You could have peace. That's what Jesus offers. You might be wondering something like this, and I think it's an appropriate question. Well, why doesn't Jesus just take my sickness or my problems or my pain or the wrongs that I have suffered? Why doesn't he just fix it like he did for these people? If he loves me, why doesn't he just do that? Third observation about Jesus. Jesus Christ is an astonishingly mysterious person. Jesus doesn't always do what you and I expect Jesus to do. 
Verses 35 to 39, which we'll look at next week, record that Jesus slips out of Peter's house early the next morning to go spend time alone in prayer with God the Father. And more than likely, I mean, word just keeps spreading. Do you think there are more sick people out there that haven't been healed yet? More than likely, people start banging on Peter's door again first thing in the morning. Bang, bang, bang. Where's Jesus? I want to be healed too. I mean, my friends, everybody, the word's spreading like crazy. Would Jesus do this for me? But Jesus isn't there. And his disciples go trying to hunt him down, figure out where on earth Jesus is gone, and they find him and they explain that everyone wants to see him. And surprisingly, Jesus tells them, actually, guys, we're not going back to Peter's house. Let's go on to the next town so that I can preach there. That's why I came out. Jesus is clarifying that he is there to preach the kingdom of God and what people need to do in response to its presence. He'd done that for the people of Capernaum. Jesus wants to declare, verse 15, to people, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That is the greatest healing that anyone could have. The healings that we're reading about in in texts like this serve to validate that message. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11 with me. I want to show you something about Capernaum. Matthew eleven twenty one to 24. Apparently the people of Capernaum didn't really get what Jesus was putting on the table, so to speak. In Matthew eleven twenty one to 24, it records that on a later date, Jesus had this to say about Capernaum. Essentially this, woe to you, Capernaum. Look at Matthew 11, beginning in verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's another location. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. That's Jesus' message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. They would have repented if all these miracles had been done for them long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And something similar said in verse 23, but now it's Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. It, Sodom, would have remained until this day, giving the impression that maybe Sodom would have repented and believed. Verse 24, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus isn't going around just to heal people. The people of Capernaum missed the biggest part, the biggest things about Jesus and his message. When Jesus says, Woe to you. Jesus told the people of Capernaum that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was near. And they're standing face to face with its king. They're standing face to face with a king who is powerful and he is good. And they're getting a taste of what the culmination of his kingdom would be like. But apparently they never came to the same realization of the demon that day in the synagogue that Jesus was the Holy One of God the king himself, and they didn't respond to the king's message like the king commanded, repent and believe the good news about all this. It's like they tasted the kingdom, but never, we might say, swallowed it. 
My wife had a doctor's appointment this last week where she was told not to eat or drink anything for several hours in advance. And so she woke up the morning of her appointment naturally quite thirsty. And she told me that she put some water in her mouth, on her tongue, swished it around. That's a nice feeling. And then spit it out. Well, that's not natural. (laughs) Like that's just, oh, this is like so close. But oh, that's not, like it's worse. She never swallowed. And that's these people. Water had been on their tongue. Food had been on their lips. They tasted the kingdom on their tongue, but they never swallowed. Jesus told a woman at the well, I would give you living water, water that whoever drinks of this water, I will give them. They'll never be thirsty again. If you drink it, you'll be healed. You'll be whole. You'll be satisfied. Jesus told a great crowd of people in John chapter 6, he said to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I will heal you. I will satisfy you. I will fill you. That is your greatest need. Jesus is a doctor who wants to heal you and everyone at the root level. He's not interested in treating all of your symptoms. He wants to treat what's causing them. He wants to treat your heart. And that's why he keeps saying to people, repent. You're a sinner. Repent and believe the good news about Jesus and the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. That is your greatest need. And people who come to Jesus to meet that greatest need of theirs come to a king whose kingdom is glorious and someday it will reach its culmination. And there at that time when we behold Jesus face to face, There will be no more sickness, there will be no more sin, and there will be no more battle with Satan. That'll all be gone. In authoritative power and goodness, he will drive all of those things away further than we could ever imagine. Jesus Christ is the astonishing answer to your greatest needs. He is astonishingly powerful. And he is astonishingly good. What he is, he is the king. And the question for every single person and the question that will continue to unfold all the way throughout the book of Mark, is he your king? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's when he becomes your king. And if you have not done that, I would encourage you, you know, you could do something very simple here this morning in your seat and just your own words talking to Jesus. Jesus, I see it. You are the king. And I'm a sinner. And I deserve to be destroyed by you, the king. Will you forgive me of my sin? Will you set me free? And whoever this Jesus is, I believe that he is the king. And I understand later he's going to die on the cross for my sins and rise again. I believe. Jesus, would you save me? Would you make me part of your kingdom? And that very thing is the very thing that he will do. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me at this time?